The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. Try to stay, stay with us. We're going to read verses 13 to 35 of Luke 24. It's also available in your service folder, and I'll reference back to that here tonight as well. Here we go. Now that same day, he's talking about Easter, the day of Easter, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, two of Jesus' uh, extended network of disciples. Uh, About seven miles, this was, from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened there in Jerusalem on Holy Week. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together there as you walk along? They stood still and their faces were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. The things about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day now since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning but didn't find his body, and they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, this is Jesus now, he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And just like that, he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those, that's the disciples, the other disciples, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. Uh, Luke is the writer of our lesson. Okay, it's Luke's gospel. Luke's the one who writes it down. He's the only of the gospel writers that records this particular account, the road to Emmaus disciples. Uh, Some of you already know that Luke is actually the guy who writes another book in the New Testament. He writes a book called Acts. Acts is the story of the early Christian church. Okay, it's the the continuation of the the gospel of Luke. It's the companion, uh, companion book to it. And at the beginning of that book in Acts, Luke writes, after Jesus' suffering, Jesus presented himself 
to his followers and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Here's what he's saying. After Jesus rose from the grave, before he physically ascended into heaven, he appeared to his disciples a bunch of different times, proving that he was alive, risen from the grave. Here's the interesting thing. Luke doesn't record a bunch of different times that Jesus appears to his disciples. Luke only records three times that he appears to his followers. Now, if Luke knows that Jesus appears to his followers a bunch of different times, but he only records three of them, that tells us he might, must think there's something pretty special about those three appearances. There must be something unique about those appearances that are beneficial for believers for all generations moving forward. The appearances were the appearance of Mary Magdalene, the appearance of the disciples on Easter Sunday evening, and right in between those is the appearance to the disciples on the walk to Emmaus. Now, what I'm proposing to you today is the reason that he includes this particular text, this particular account of Jesus appearing to these disciples, is because in this account, Luke is teaching us how we can meet Jesus. It's just as possible for us to encounter Christ today as it was for those early disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, we're going to learn a couple things from them here today. Before I, before I go on, though, I don't want you... Here's the backdrop of the text. Emmaus was this little village outside of Jerusalem. Bible scholars debate exactly where it is. For our purposes today, it's not that important. It's several miles outside of Jerusalem, but it's walkable. And these disciples on Easter Sunday afternoon are walking out from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they're very discouraged. Why are they discouraged? Because they thought Jesus was going to be the guy. They thought for sure he was the guy. He was the promised Messiah, but he got crucified. And in their minds at this point, everything, all their hopes and dreams had ended on Good Friday. And we learned two things from them here today, okay? We learn uh, what we can relate to with these disciples is we learn the reason why we're so discouraged. You're going to notice their faces fall downcast. And I'm suggesting to you the same reason that our faces fall downcast today is the exact same reason that they did. And we also learn in this text how to meet the resurrected Jesus. That would be the antidote. That would be the one thing that would overwhelm the discouragement that you face in life is if you had an encounter with a risen Savior who promised you a better life. Okay? So first of all, the reason we get so discouraged, I'm going to break this into three, three quicker points. Okay? First of all, we get discouraged because, one, we think about life without the resurrection. Um, you'll notice that as these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, they're very discouraged. And I mentioned earlier, they thought Jesus was supposed to be the guy. He was the pro- they thought he was the promised ful- fulfillment of the Messiah. And uh, they're, they're throwing off this tremendously negative energy and negative vibe just, that's just emanating from them to such an extent that when Jesus actually walks up to them, we're told, he says, what are you discussing? And they stood there still, their faces were downcast. Why are they so downcast? Because they still don't see Jesus resurrected from the grave. He's standing right there in front of them, but they don't see the resurrection yet. Back in fall, when we looked at uh, the season of end times, we said, if you don't actually have in your ideology an understanding of Judgment Day, 
you're always going to be super frustrated in life about all the injustices that you see in the world. And yes, of course, we're supposed to work hard to help uh, overcome some of those injustices, but there's still going to be injustices that take place and we don't have any control over them. What is the one thing that can give you some relief from that? If you believe there's a judgment day, if you believe that at the end of all human civilization, there is a God who writes all the wrongs that have ever taken place here, that gives you some peace amidst some of the injustices that you have no control over here in life. The exact same thing is true with the resurrection. If you don't, in your ideology, in the framework of your thinking, have an understanding of the resurrection, either Christ's or ours, you're always going to be discouraged in life. And you don't even just have to take my word for it, the secular world thinks the exact same way. If you were to go to the NASA website today, you would find a quote by a guy named Dr. Eric Christian on NASA's official website who says, five billion years from now, the sun will use up most of its hydrogen and will get larger and cooler. And at that time, Mercury and Venus, Earth and Mars will be swallowed up by the sun. That's actually going to happen. Human life will not be able to exist much earlier than that, maybe only two or three billion years we've got left. In other words, even the secular world is saying it's all going away. This planet, this solar system, this universe in its present form is going away. And if there is no resurrection, then every single thing that has ever happened here on this planet, every event, every occurrence, every relationship you or I have ever had, every word we've ever spoken, every dollar we've ever earned, none of it matters squat. Because all of it's just going away and nobody's going to remember any of it. If there is no resurrection, nothing here matters at all. If there's no life beyond this one, the earth is going, it's, it's going away. The best scholars are saying it's going away. You're not going to be remembered. You're not going to be some, there's not going to be some landmark to you. It's all dying and passing away. Now, that's kind of depressing. It's all just going to pass away. In fact, yeah, absolutely it is. When you actually conceive of a world, a naturalistic understanding of the world with no life after this one, when you die, you just rot and go into the grave. Kind of depressing. Um, in fact, there's one leading thinker in the past 150 years, one modern thinker who epitomized that brilliantly well. If you, if you take a college philosophy or sociology class, you'll run into the name Friedrich Nietzsche. And he was the one guy I know who embodied that perfectly. And when he died, he was going crazy. He was insane. He drove himself insane because he thought about life in terms of just naturalistic, materialistic things. There's nothing new under the, there's nothing else under the sun that really matters. Life is meaningless. And so he lived as though life was meaningless and it drove him nuts. Now, what's interesting is I would also suggest to you, I don't think anybody has influenced modern Western thought more than Nietzsche. In other words, this is the reason why 21st century Western people have their basic human needs met at historically unprecedented rates, and yet we're no happier than anybody else. In fact, we're more depressed. If you look at diaries of people today versus diaries of people hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, we're more depressed than anybody else ever. Why? Because we're looking, the majority of humanity is looking at life without a resurrection. We have no Christ consciousness inside of us. And I think the equation is exactly the same today. If you look at life without resurrection, if it's not in your everyday consciousness, you will get discouraged. Your face will fall downcast, just like these Emmaus disciples. And the same thing is true in the opposite. If you're discouraged, if you're depressed, if you are downcast on a regular basis, you know what that means? 
You're living for the here and now. You're not thinking in terms of resurrection. You're living, the world lives for instant gratification in here and now, not for the yet to come. If you operate and look at life through the lens of the resurrection, I guarantee there's not going to be any room for any more despair in your life. Okay? That's one reason we're discouraged. We don't think about the resurrection often enough. Uh, number two, we get blinded because we forget that Jesus often works in the ordinary. Um, in verse 16, uh, it says, they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Now, the commentators will debate whether or not Jesus intentionally prevented them from seeing who he was or if it was just their own unbelief that caused them to not be able to see that it was him. In either case, they're blind. They're blind to the reality that Jesus is standing there right before them, risen from the grave. Okay? Now, one of the more common laments, this teaches us something very practical. Because one of the more common complaints I get from Christians who are suffering is when they go through difficult times, they say, I don't see how a loving God would allow this. My life doesn't make any sense right now. Where is God when it hurts? That kind of stuff. Now, look at what's happening in the text. Jesus is literally walking with this guy, these guys, but they don't see him there. And part of the reason is it's just all too ordinary. He's just walking there talking to them. They were hoping for something much bigger and flashier than this. And you and I struggle with the exact same thing. Right? A lot of times we say, where is God in this? Well, he's absolutely right there, but you're, you're not actually acknowledging that he works through ordinary means. So a lot of times we look at somebody who's really proud and arrogant and think God should just bring a lightning bolt down upon that person and show them what's up. He doesn't do that. He lets their private relationships blow up in their lives through their arrogance. He works through that. A lot of times we'd like people who are in financial need, wouldn't it be great if God would just give them a winning lottery ticket? He doesn't do that. He works through their friends and, and family and fellow Christians to support their needs. Much less spectacular, but much more typical of the way God operates. When we want God to operate, we want to walk on water. But God wants us to go and take a walk with a fellow Christian and have them remind us of God's promises. We don't like that because that's a little too ordinary. God typically works in the extraordinarily ordinary. And if you don't understand that, you're going to miss him operating in your life a lot of the time just like these disciples did. Okay? Point number three. We get blinded and discouraged because we forget that the primary thing we need in life is redemption, not just a little help. Um, maybe the best line in this entire text, if you're following along in your, in your pamphlet here, it's in verses 20 and 21. We're told the chief priests and our rulers, the, the, the disciples are saying this, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he might actually be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, wait a second. In retrospect, we would look at that and we would say, yes, he was crucified, and that's how he redeemed Israel. He was crucified, that's how he saved his people. But they're saying, he was crucified, and here we were thinking he was going to redeem Israel. What does that mean? If he died on the cross to pay for our sins, but that wasn't the redemption that they were looking for, that means they think they're bigger slaves to something other than sin. 
And if you know the history of the, the historical context of the Jewish people in the first century AD, you know this is true. They thought the Messiah at this point was going to be somebody who came and delivered them from the Romans. They thought true redemption would mean freedom from political and economic oppression. And when they didn't see Jesus doing that, they said, oh, he, only, he got crucified. He didn't actually redeem us. They thought they had a bigger problem, a bigger slavery than their sins, and that's why they were missing Jesus. Okay? In other words, they thought the unfortunate negative circumstances in their lives were their biggest problems. They didn't see their slavery to their own sin as the biggest problem. They thought if he could just come along and make our lives a little better, then we could go and live happily ever after. And you and I make the exact same mistake. Every single one of us, every single one of us, our first instinct is to say that the thing that enslaves me the most is something other than some culprit, other than my own self-centered sin that steals my happiness. Every single one of us at some point in time, it's different things, but we say, if I could just get ahead and work, if I could just finish up my schooling, if I could just uh, get over that health problem, if I could just get my finances in order, if I could just get my husband to be a little more fill in the blank, if I could just find that special someone, then, then happiness. No, not in a sinful world, though. The main problem in, in a sinful world is not that you have a couple negative circumstances here and there. It's that you and I are slaves to our sin, and our sin actually blinds us to that. Um, let me put it this way. As a Christian, the grace and promises of Jesus give you, if you accept them, give you an unshakable joy and optimism about the future. The grace and promises of Jesus give you an unshakable joy and, and confidence and optimism about the future. But in a sinful world, they don't make you happy all the time. And I think one of the primary problems with Christianity in our circles in the past 30 years has been a Christianity that says, I mean, look at the best-selling Christian books. What do you primarily need? You just need a little chicken soup for the soul. You should really just get your best life now. You just need to change a few circumstances in your life and then you'll be fine. No, that's insane. Uh, the primary problem that you and I face is not slavery to some bad circumstances in this life. It's the slavery to our sin. Let me, let me put it this way. I, the, the, the incessant obsession with modern Christians over I need to be perpetually happy, that is a lie and it's unhealthy. If you think in this lifetime, in a fallen world, you are supposed to be perpetually happy, you're either delusional or a sociopath. Here's why. Okay, I can prove this to you. If you think I'm supposed to be perpetually happy, there's things that you can do that will make you happy all the time in a sinful world. If you're in the hospital and you're not feeling good, what do they do? They can pump some morphine and some oxycodone and a bunch of other artificial chemicals into you. You won't be able to operate any heavy machinery, but you'll be very happy. Why are you happy? Because life has gotten better? No, because they've put you out of touch with reality. You're not seeing or feeling reality anymore. You're blinding yourself to the hurting reality. You can be happy all the time, but you've got to be completely delusional. On the other hand, you say, well, what if I just had great circumstances all the time? 
What if I got my life exactly the way it was supposed to be? If God loved me and he gave me just a wonderful life here on earth in a fallen world, well, what would that mean? Sure, let's say you're happy and your circumstances are perfect all the time in a fallen world, but nobody else's is. People are still starving. People are still being oppressed. People are still dying without Christ. If you're happy in those moments, you're a sociopath. The only person you care about is yourself. So you've got great life circumstances, but you clearly have no concern for anybody else. If you think you should be perpetually happy in a fallen world, you're either delusional or you're a sociopath. You follow me? What do you need? The the thing that we feel is really enslaving us is not really the thing that's enslaving us, the bad circumstances. That's the product of a fallen world. That's the thing that indicates to you and me, like Lewis said, that we were built for a bigger and better world. The thing that really enslaves us in life is the sin that freezes our hearts and, and confuses our judgment. So, consequently, we don't need a Messiah who will make our life circumstances a little bit better. We need a Messiah who will pay for our sins and redeem us to a different life entirely. Look at what Cleopas said. He said, he was crucified, but we thought he was going to redeem us. No, he was crucified, and that did redeem you. See, like Cleopas, when you think the biggest slavery you face in life is something other than your sins, and you think the Messiah is just supposed to bring a few better circumstances, that's when you miss him. They missed him because they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. Until the end. Which brings me to the final point. Let me just summarize what we said. We said people get discouraged because they don't, they miss the resurrection. They're looking through life without the lens of the resurrection. They forget that Jesus works in the ordinary. He's present in their lives in that way. Uh, They get discouraged because they think they need a Messiah to do just a little assistance in their life, not actually redeem them from their sins. The solution to that would be to meet the real Jesus. Now, we're told, actually, how we do that in this lesson. It's in verses 30 to 32. Two things. Luke writes, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Two things are happening here that cause you to meet Jesus. The disciples were meeting together with fellow believers and their Bibles were opened. Um, If you are not regularly meeting together with fellow believers around open Bibles, working out the implications of the resurrection in your life, I suppose it's possible that you might still have some kind of encounter with Christ, but I wouldn't count on it. On the other hand, if you are doing that, meeting together regularly with your fellow believers around open Bibles, and by the way, this is only part of that, because we're meeting together kind of like this. You are all facing this direction. You're not doing a whole lot of side-to-side interaction. If you meet together with fellow Christians around open Bibles, working out the implications of the resurrection, not only is it possible, you should expect the presence of Christ. Um, Don't wrestle with your major life questions or your major life decisions alone. 
Modern Western society is very individualistic and we think we should do everything by ourselves and figure it out by ourselves. Don't wrestle with life's questions and decisions alone. Don't wrestle with your past guilt over your own haunting mistakes. Don't wrestle by, with that by yourself. Don't wrestle with all the doubts that you might have uh, about God by yourselves. The more you alone you allow yourself to be, the more downcast you'll get. Get into the Bible, uh, get into Bible study, get into small groups, get into the life of the church and that's where you can expect that you'll meet him. Now, one more thing. It's good to have your Bibles open, and it's good to be meeting with fellow Christians, but even that isn't enough. There has to be something direct happening in the midst of that, and Jesus tells us what it is. It's uh, in, in verse 27 here. We're told that when he was meeting with the Emmaus disciples, uh, he began to explain the Bible to them. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, here's the interesting thing. He's walking with them for several hours and he explains the Bible, especially the stuff concerning himself. Now, Bible commentators will say, I wonder what he was talking to them about. Well, I'll tell you what. I bet he probably started with Genesis 3.15. And he said, you know what? When God promised that there was going to become one, one that was going to come to crush the serpent's head and undo the work of Satan, that was me. And from there on out, he probably went to some of the 456 prophecies in the Old Testament that he himself fulfilled, including his own crucifixion. And then from there, he probably went to all the Jewish heroes and said, you know all those great stories that you learned growing up? They're all actually about me. What do I mean? Uh, look at a couple real quick. The story of David and Goliath. I've heard the story of David and Goliath told a thousand times and 999 of them have probably been stories of personal empowerment, how God wants them to empower you as the underdog. No, that's not the story. The story is about a little shepherd who goes out onto a battlefield who de defeats the ultimate and biggest and ugliest of enemies so that when he has a victory, it gets attributed to his people. That's the story of Jesus. What about the story of Jonah? Jo oh yeah, Jonah's the story of the guy who gets swallowed by a fish, right? Wrong. Jonah's the story of a prophet who in the midst of a storm gets thrown overboard voluntarily in order to save the pagans that are in the ship with him. And immediately the storm goes away because he gets thrown into the eye of the storm. And then he falls into the, a pit of death for three days only against all unlikely circumstances to get spit out on dry ground three days later. You know what that story is? That's the story of Jesus. What about Esther? Uh, Esther's the story, oh, that's the story of a Jewish beauty queen, right? Eh. Esther's the story of a woman who was the most beautiful amongst her people. And yet, uh, she risks her life to save her people. You can't understand the story of Esther until you get to Jesus because Jesus, even though in physically his appearance was nothing impressive, spiritually he was the one beautiful person amongst the entire human race and yet he not just risks his life for his people, he gives his life for his people so that all of our ugliness is placed on him and he makes all of his people beautiful. You can't teach the story of Esther unless you get to Jesus. The whole Bible concerns me, is what he's telling the disciples. Now, there's two ways to read the Bible. You can either read the Bible through the lens of, this is all about me, or you can read the Bible through the lens of, this is all about Jesus. And you read it through the lens about you, and you will think, ooh, this is a lot of pressure. There's a lot of rules in here, and if I don't do this, a lot of bad things are going to happen. And it's very overwhelming. You'll get very discouraged with a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. Or you can read it through the lens of Jesus and his goodness for you. 
You read it through the first lens, and it will give you heartburn. You read it through the second lens, and it will set your heart on fire. We're living in the age of the Spirit, which means Jesus ascended into heaven, and he says, physically, yes, I'm going up there, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my Spirit now down upon you, upon my people, down into my church. That is where you will find me. Embrace that. Open your mind to new thoughts. Open your doors to God's people. Open your Bibles to Revelation. Open your mouths to sing his praises and pray to him. Do that and your hearts will begin to burn with Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, a lot of you, a lot of us struggle with discouragement. Uh, it's not about life circumstances. We all think if we just changed a couple circumstances, our lives would finally be happy. No. No, the problem is not the, de- the negative, difficult life circumstances, as hard as those are. The problem is we still have scales over our eyes that don't perfectly see a resurrected Lord and what that means. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to meet you in one another. Help us to live and thrive within your body and help us to be greatly encouraged and then go and live courageous lives. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.